Hello everyone and welcome to the Siegel Rare Neuroimmune Association or SRNA's Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Optic Neuritis, When is it just optic neuritis and when does it mean more? My name is Gigi DeFibri and I will be moderating this podcast. SRNA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at wearesrna.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on our website and for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. We want to thank the sponsors of this month's podcast, Alexion Pharmaceuticals, Viela Bio, and Genentech. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement is always at the forefront of their work. Viela Bio is dedicated to the development and commercialization of novel, life-changing medicines for patients with a wide range of autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases. Their team is comprised of passionate, talented, world-class leaders with diverse experience in the autoimmune disease space, and their research focuses on well-established critical biological pathways shared across multiple indications. Also, founded more than 40 years ago, Genentech is a leading bio biotechnology company that discovers, develops, manufactures, and commercializes medicines to treat patients with serious and life-threatening medical conditions. The company, a member of the Roche Group, has headquarters in South San Francisco, California. For additional information about the company, please visit gene.com. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Elias Sotirtos and Dr. Amanda Henderson. Um, Dr. Sotirkos is a neurologist and director of the Johns Hopkins Neuromyelitis Optica Center. He earned his medical degree from the National and Kapodistrian University of Athens and completed, completed his neurology residency training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He subsequently pursued fellowship training in neuroimmunology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital as the National Multiple Sclerosis Society Sylvia Laurie Fellow. His research focuses on the application of imaging techniques, including retinal optical coherence tomography, OCT, and brain magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to study multiple sclerosis, neuromyelitis optica, and other neuroimmunological conditions. His work especially focuses on visual pathway involvement in these conditions and aims to characterize mechanisms of neurodegeneration and to identify novel biomarkers for predicting and monitoring the disease course and therapeutic response. Dr. Henderson is an assistant professor in ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. She attended medical school at Emory University, completed a residency in ophthalmology at the Medical College of Georgia, and completed a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. In addition to her work as a clinician, she's involved in clinical and translational research with particular interests in optic neuropathies and in ophthalmolic and neuroimaging. She has presented nationally and internationally and published in these areas. She also has a particular interest in resident and medical student education, serving as the fellowship director for neuroophthalmology and the education champion for the division of neuroophthalmology at Wilmer and on education related committees in the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the North American Neuroophthalmology Society and is the recipient of the Helen Lips Scholar Fund to support development of resident education. 
Welcome and thank you both so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to join. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank for you for having us. Thank you. Um, so just to start to kind of give this a broad overview to our listeners, what is optic neuritis? Uh, Dr. Henderson? So optic neuritis is an inflammatory condition of the optic nerve that usually leads to sudden loss of vision, often associated with pain as well. And it's actually the most common cause of acute vision loss or sudden vision loss from an optic nerve problem in young adults. Great, thank you. And um, uh, Dr. Sotirkos, what are the symptoms of optic neuritis? Yeah, so um, as Dr. Henderson mentioned, the, the kind of the main symptoms that we're looking at are vision loss in association with eye pain, typically with eye movements. The eye pain occurs in about 90% or greater than patients who present with optic neuritis. It often starts at the same time as the, the visual disturbance, but may also precede it sometimes as well. Again, in terms of the vision changes, these can the severity of vision loss and the manifestation may vary from individual to individual, but typically the kind of earliest sign will be often loss of low contrast vision, uh, loss of color, color may, may appear, alter, appear altered, and then typically this will relatively rapidly progress over a period of a few days where patients will kind of reach a, a nadir in terms of the visual function. And this may vary again from individual to individual. So there's a, a broad spectrum where patients may reach a, a stage where they might have no perception of light in that eye to having relatively mild visual dysfunction in the affected eye. So there's a broad spectrum of clinical manifestations that we see in terms of the severity of visual dysfunction that may occur. Got it. Thank you. And then, you know, if there is any water, what's the diagnostic criteria for optic neuritis and what tests or um, methods are used to diagnose optic neuritis in someone? Uh, Dr. Henderson? So, you know, traditionally, optic neuritis has really been what we call a clinical diagnosis, meaning that the history of vision loss and pain, uh, as well as the physical exam, can really be used to diagnose optic neuritis um, using, you know, the symptoms that Dr. Satirkos just described, as well as kind of the sudden onset of vision loss, which maybe progresses over a few days but happens uh, relatively quickly. Additionally, there are findings on the exam when the eye doctor or the neurologist examines the eyes that can really indicate that there's an optic nerve problem, particularly one thing we look for in cases of optic neuritis is something called a relative afferent pupillary defect, which is really a sign that we, uh, as neuro-ophthalmologists, can see on the exam that demonstrates that one optic nerve is not conducting signals from the light as well as the other optic nerve. Um, often, in optic neuritis on our examination, the optic nerve looks pretty normal in about two-thirds of cases. However, about a third of the time, it does look swollen, and so that can be a, a clue as well in some cases. Um, in addition to you know, what we see in the clinic and the history of, of what's going on in, in an individual situation, there are also some additional tests that can be used to diagnose optic neuritis. Uh, again, an, an, an older test that was used is something called a visual evoked potential, or a VEP, which is a test that really measures the function of the visual pathways and would be abnormal in the uh, affected eye 
in a case of optic neuritis. The downside to using the VEP to really diagnose optic neuritis is that there are many factors that can affect the results. And so it's not 100% specific, or it doesn't really indicate that optic neuritis is the only possible diagnosis. Um, luckily, in the last couple of decades, we've had a lot of advancement in neuroimaging capabilities, specifically MRI, uh, with regards to optic neuritis. So now, uh, in clinical practice in the United States, it's really quite uncommon to diagnose an optic neuritis without getting an MRI scan. So that's pretty much considered standard of care here now. Uh, so we can order an MRI scan and specific protocols of an MRI scan using contrast to allow us to see that inflammation of the optic nerve, as well as special protocols that uh, decrease the signal from other structures, particularly the fat that surrounds the optic nerve in the eye socket, and really allows us to get a good look at that optic nerve to see if there's any active inflammation going on. And so, again, at, at this point in time, MRI is really an excellent way to confirm the diagnosis of optic neuritis. Got it. Thank you. I think that was a, a really good overview of, you know, what, what someone might be looking at in terms of, you know, getting this diagnosis. Um, so, you know, if someone, you know, the, the diagnosis of optic neuritis is made, you know, whether through, you know, one or many of these, uh, you know, diagnostic tests, um, what are the acute treatments or what's kind of the next step that's done um, once someone has this diagnosis? Uh, Dr. Sotiros? So the, the, really the mainstay of treatment of optic neuritis is um, corticosteroids in the acute phase. Um, this has been shown in a, a seminal clinical trial called the Optic Neuritis Treatment Trial in the 1990s that it um, would, would accelerated visual recovery after optic neuritis. Although it is somewhat controversial and has not been conclusively demonstrated that it affects long-term visual outcomes after optic neuritis, but that is typically administered in the acute phase of optic neuritis, and we know that it, it produces an in improvement in terms of what we see at three and six months in terms of visual recovery compared to people who receive placebo in that trial. Um, corticosteroids are typically administered in very high kind of what we call pulse dose intravenously in the initial stage. And the dose is um, 1,000 milligrams of methylprednisolone intravenously for three to five days. Um, some typically uh, sometimes followed by an oral taper, although that is sometimes um, foregone. And the um, the um, rationale was based on, on this um, treatment trial. Now, there are some alternatives that have been shown recently. So often, if given the logistics of setting up intravenous infusions, people have done kind of studies where they've studied equivalent oral doses of corticosteroids. And sometimes in order to ease the administration of this and avoid having to place an IV, people can administer high doses, equivalent doses of high-dose corticosteroids orally in the acute phase of optic neuritis. So that is really the mainstay of treatment. Frequently, we do add, well, frequently, I would say frequently, frequently at our center in cases that we see that are relatively severe and I see a lot of neuromyelitis optica are in our clinic, in those cases, we often add what is called plasmapheresis or plasma exchange during which a patient's um, 
blood is essentially a component of that. The blood is removed called plasma and re replaced with what is called um, an albumin solution. Essentially, the thought is re that we are by that way removing harmful antibodies from the blood and potentially improving visual outcomes. Um, so those are really the mainstays of treatment. Most, the vast majority of patients will receive only corticosteroids. Typically, that is kind of our, our mainstay, but in cases where we have persistent, severe visual dysfunction that is not improving despite steroids, we will um, sometimes add plasmapheresis on top of that. Thank you. And just a follow-up to that, if, you know, um, if someone's presenting with, for example, just optic neuritis or, um, you know, maybe optic neuritis and then um, issues related to, you know, spinal cord uh, damage, for example, is there a different Kind of treatment protocol, you know, in terms of doing just steroids versus steroids and plasma exchange, or how does that, you know, potential potentially play into the treatment protocol? Yeah, um, so I mean, I think that if somebody is presenting with simultaneous optic neuritis and transverse myelitis, um, first of all, I think that there's there's the issue of the fact that you have more more systems affected and the patient has weakness and other symptoms that are more severe that should be treated aggressively at the time. The other issue is that neuromyelitis optica may present in that fashion. And neuromyelitis optica has um, there are various underlying causes, including association with what we call an autoantibody in the blood called uh, against aquaporin four but also against another another um, target called myelin oligodendrocyclicoprotein or MOG. And it is thought that these conditions are due to these, what we call autoantibodies going into the CNS and, and binding to targets within the optic nerve. And the, that supports a rationale to potentially use plasmapheresis earlier on since we anticipate that that might be the cause. So often in patients who do present with simultaneous optic neuritis, transverse myelitis, we often have a lower threshold to initiate plasma exchange if they are not, especially if they're not improving relatively rapidly after an initiation of corticosteroid treatment. Got it, thank you. Um, and then I know you mentioned that uh, with IV steroids, it's sometimes you know between three and five days um, is there a, you know, is there a reason for choosing one versus the other, or um, uh, if you could just talk a little bit more about that, uh, Dr. Henderson? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, th the three-day course really came, as Dr. Satirkos mentioned, from the uh, optic neuritis treatment trial, which evaluated that three-day course of, of high-dose steroid. Um, there, that wasn't a head-to-head -head trial of three versus five days, and to my knowledge, there's really never been a, a randomized trial uh, comparing those two treatment regimens. Uh, so it probably depends on the individual doctor's experience, but there is some newer data, uh, primarily in the neurology literature, that uh, supports the five-day course as well. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, is optic neuritis typically considered recurring or monophasic? Uh, Dr. Henderson as well? So, you know, this is highly dependent really on the underlying cause of the optic neuritis. So, some patients with optic neuritis can have only one episode and never really have another neurologic issue. However, 
patients who have an underlying condition may have a much higher rate of recurrence. And particularly one one condition that we're talking about a lot now is the MOG, uh, the myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-related uh, disease, in which patients who have an optic neuritis have a very high risk of recurrence, like uh, greater than 80%. Um, so it really depends on the underlying cause, whether it's likely to be recurrent. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, you know, if someone is has had, you know, a case of optic neuritis before, and then maybe they're having, having a worsening of symptoms related to their vision, um, how does, you know, how can someone determine whether they're having a, an actual relapse or, you know, something like a pseudo relapse? Um, Dr. Sotirkos? Yeah, that's a great question. So just to to define first of all what we mean by pseudo relapse. So when when we say pseudo flare or pseudo relapse, what we're referring to is a a temporary worsening um, of a prior neurological injury that has occurred, typically in the setting of stress, heat, infection, or some other kind of systemic process. So we typically advise our patients. Um, kind of follow what we call the 24-hour rule in our clinic. This relates not just to optic neuritis symptoms, but also to symptoms that have maybe from a, associated with a prior attack and multiple sclerosis or neuromyelitis optica. So um, if, if the symptoms kind of persist more than 24 hours, that is something that we become more concerned about. Then we look clearly for exposures that could precipitate a temporary worsening. So let's say that we have a patient who was out walking in the heat and the symptoms flared at that stage. We advise them to cool down, and if they resolve and go away, that's typically what you would associate with temporary worsening the setting of heat. It's a well-described phenomenon called UTAS phenomenon. And then if we have symptoms persisting beyond that, there are typically sometimes we will undertake investigations and make sure that we are not missing, for example, a urinary tract infection or something like that, which could we often see may temporarily exacerbate symptoms in patients. So it's really a clinical diagnosis, but what we advise our patients is to identify, to be aware of the potential stressors that can bring out those symptoms and kind of follow this kind of 24-hour rule to some extent. Okay, and then just to follow up, you know, besides looking at someone's symptoms and maybe ruling out these potentially, you know, temporary, uh, you know, causes of, you know, of a pseudo relapse, um, how does a physician identify a relapse for someone whose optic nerves are damaged and most of their sight is already lost? Uh, Dr. Sotirkos? Yeah, so that's uh, sometimes it's it's a little bit challenging in patients who have at baseline um, already relatively poor visual function. So in those situations, I'd say that there are two really main ways that can aid, especially in patients who have very little visual function remaining. So one is what we call um, a visual field, which kind of maps out to some extent what the um, sensitivity of that eye that is in various areas of the field of vision. And that can identify often relatively subtle changes that might be missed on a bedside examination, but the patient is often aware of subjectively. And then obviously an uh, MRI of the orbits can provide um, significant hints into whether there is something going on because we would see acute inflammation in the optic nerve as well. So that, that can also aid in somebody who has a baseline poor visual function to, to provide objective evidence of a new attack. Okay. Um, and then, you know, once someone has had optic neuritis, 
Um, is there a general kind of trend in terms of time it takes to uh, heal and potentially recover vision? Um, Dr. Henderson? So this is a little bit variable depending on treatment. What we know from that optic neuritis treatment trial is that treatment with high-dose steroids does improve the time course of recovery, so people get better faster when they get high-dose steroids, um, even though the steroids in many cases may not improve the ultimate outcome. Um, other, you know, in, typically we see improvement uh, initially uh, within a few days if a patient is getting steroids, but it can take much longer and sometimes can even take several months to get back to the uh, the point where the vision is going to end up. Okay, um, and then is there also any ongoing medication or treatment uh, for optic neuritis, um, you know, beyond that kind of, you know, three to five day uh, steroid, IV steroid, uh, Dr. Anderson? So there really, there usually is not any ongoing medication for the optic neuritis itself. However, if the evaluation uh, identifies an underlying disease, so something like MS or neurobiolitis optica or MOG-related disease, then these conditions often do require ongoing treatment. So, for instance, patients with multiple sclerosis uh, would need to be on some sort of disease-modifying therapy, of which there are many options, to try to prevent further relapses and to, to decrease progression of the disease. Patients with neuromyelitis optica would need to also be on a medication to pre prevent relapse. Uh, patients particularly with neuromyelitis optica um, are really always considered to be at risk for relapse, and so it is highly recommended that they're on medication to prevent that. And options, you know, historically have included rituximab, um, and, and more recently, the FDA approval, the first FDA approval actually has come out for uh, ecolizumab as an, an agent that can potentially help prevent relapses in neuromyelitis optica. Um, there's still a lot of research being done with regards to MOG-related disease regarding what the best treatment is to prevent relapse in the long term. Um, there's some pretty good initial preliminary kind of data looking at IVIG or uh, intravenous immunoglobulin, although lots of other immunosuppressive agents have also been used um, with kind of varying degrees of benefit, but it's still not entirely clear what is the best immunosuppressant in, in that case. Uh, so really, in general, it's just important to identify the correct underlying condition because these different underlying conditions require different ongoing medical treatments. And not only if you if the wrong condition is diagnosed, not only is uh, the incorrect treatment being given, but sometimes that can actually worse, uh, worsen one of the other conditions in the long term. Um, so really correct identification of the underlying condition is the most important thing to determine any sort of ongoing or long-term treatment. Great, thank you. And that's actually a wonderful transition to our, our next question about, you know, figuring out, um, you know, how how to basically determine whether the diagnosis is, you know, optic neuritis on its own or whether it's part of this large, you know, larger disorder like MS or NMO um, or, you know, ADEM or, or MOG, you know, antibody-associated disease. Uh, Dr. Sotirkos, do you mind just talking a little bit about how that diagnosis is made? Yeah, certainly. So, 
When a patient first presents with optic neuritis, I think that there are a few things that need to be taken account. First, in terms of the optic neuritis itself, there are some characteristics, especially on imaging, that can suggest um, one diagnosis or another. So what we know is that in neuromyelitis optica, uh, the, um, the lesion involves a longer portion of the optic nerve. So that's one important clue often that we have regarding optic neuritis in terms of trying to distinguish, is this due to neuromyelitis optica or is it in the, an idiopathic or associated with uh, multiple sclerosis? Then there are other characteristics that we see in MOG versus aquaporin-4-related disease. So in MOG-related disease, there's often um, what we call perineural enhancement. So that's involvement of the structure surrounding the optic nerve. And often the involvement is long, but it's also more in the, in the front of the optic nerve. Whereas in aquaporin-4-related disease, we often see involvement of what's called the chiasm and the posterior optic nerve, which is the area where the two optic nerves actually cross paths to some extent at that, that, that stage in the chiasm and trade about 50% of their fibers. Um, so that's kind of in terms of the optic neuritis and imaging characteristics, things that can aid a little bit. And otherwise, um, the visual recovery is a, is a significant, is an important clue since we know that visual recovery is generally better with idiopathic or multiple sclerosis associated optic neuritis or MOG related optic neuritis relative to the optic neuritis associated with aquaporin 4 IgG. And then in addition to kind of the visual and optic neuritis characteristics that we see, we, we generally will undertake imaging of the rest of the central nervous system, so the brain and the spinal cord, since the lesions in those regions and their specific configuration and pattern can help suggest a specific diagnosis. So generally in multiple sclerosis, we will most frequently see lesions in, involving the brain that have a specific pattern to them. Um, and this can also help to potentially um, inform what the risk is for a patient who has developed optic neuritis is to go on and develop multiple sclerosis in the future, so to develop a second attack, or can even, using our current MS diagnostic criteria, actually clinch the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis even with a single optic neuritis. And so that is also very helpful. And then the last thing, in addition to the MRI characteristics, which again differ between multiple sclerosis and NMO and other conditions, is also the cerebrospinal fluid analysis, which is often undertaken when patients are admitted inpatient, and that there are specific things that we look for. So what what the number of white blood cells is and what the composition of them is, and then something that is called oligoclonal bands, which is a specific pattern that we see in the, in the cerebrospinal fluid, which is um, highly prevalent in multiple sclerosis, so up to 90% of patient levels will have that, whereas in MOG and aquaporin-4-related conditions, the prevalence is much lower, 20% approximately. And then also, in addition to those investigations, blood tests for the anti-MOG and anti-aquaporin-4 antibody are clearly very helpful and can be diagnostic of, of the condition in a patient presenting with optic neuritis. Okay, thank you. Um, and then does optic neuritis usually occur just in one eye or can it be bilateral? Um, and then does this change, you know, depending on the overall eye or, or the, you know, underlying potential diagnosis? Dr. Henderson? So, Overall, optic neuritis is much more commonly unilateral, just occurring in one eye at a time, 
but it can be bilateral, and particularly in MOG-related disease, optic neuritis is very commonly bilateral. In something around 90% of, of cases, it can actually be bilateral uh, when associated with MOG. So that's another clue that can, uh, you know, indicate that that might be a more likely diagnosis. For instance, in multiple sclerosis, it would be very uncommon for for the optic neuritis to be bilateral at presentation. Okay, thank you. Um, and then just a, you know, a follow-up in terms of if, you know, offering long-term immunotherapies, um, how often are, are these offered to a patient who, you know, has a first episode of optic neuritis with a normal MRI of the brain and spinal cord um, and with uh, negative oligoclonal bands, but with an elevated IgG index, uh, Dr. Sotirkos? Um, yeah, so that's a, a great question. So I think that there, so that would be technically termed a, a clinically isolated syndrome is what a, um, a patient presenting with an isolated optic neuritis in the setting of a normal brain MRI would be. Now, based on the optic neuritis treatment trial, um, which again, we, we keep referring back to this, but it is really the best information that we have to inform a lot of these discussions. In a patient who had no lesions on their brain MRI at the time of the optic neuritis, the 15-year um, probability of developing multiple sclerosis was about 25%. So in that, in that context, I think that one could argue that withholding therapy at that stage and following with serial MRIs is, I think, generally what I personally would recommend, although, again, I think that there are some treatments for multiple sclerosis, such as glutyramer acetate, also known as Copaxone, which some people might elect to, um, to initiate at that stage, potentially, given the, um, the risk, although the risk is relatively low, and I think that most clinicians would opt to adopt a watch and wait response in that setting. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Henderson, what is the, the, we've talked a little bit about the kind of prognosis for someone who's diagnosed with optic neuritis, um, but, you know, in general, what, what is the prognosis? Does, um, you know, vision loss return? And then what about these other symptoms like blurry or double vision or eye pain? Do they tend to, to go away after treatment or do they persist over time? So in a typical case of optic neuritis, uh, people often get a lot of their vision back and have a pretty good visual recovery. Um, I only have a few patients who think that their vision is all the way back to 100%. It's much more common that even if they, the acuity returns to 20-20, which would be like kind of the definition of perfect on the chart, um, it's still common for there to be some color vision deficits or some contrast deficits that are that are noticed by the person who had the optic neuritis. Um, now, when I talk about typical optic neuritis, that's sort of like optic neuritis related to multiple sclerosis. Some of these other underlying conditions can make that prognosis a bit different. For instance, patients with neuromyelitis optica typically don't have as good a visual recovery and sometimes are unfortunately left with a very significant amount of vision loss. Um, so it really does, again, depend on the underlying condition. As far as other symptoms, you know, some of these other symptoms, the eye pain would be expected to resolve 
as the as the inflammation improves. Um, double vision, on the other hand, would not be expected to to relate directly to optic neuritis, but could represent a sep a separate sort of lesion. Um, for instance, in a patient with multiple sclerosis. Uh, so while that might improve, it wouldn't it wouldn't be expected to be due to the same sort of cause, the same underlying lesion as the optic neuritis itself. Okay, and then do we know why some people recover and regain their sight um, more than others, um, or is this something we still don't know too much about, uh, Dr. Henderson? Right, it's pretty difficult to predict uh, which uh, an individual, how an individual person will recover their vision, but it's clearly very, uh, it correlates very strongly with the underlying cause. Okay, um, and then so we did get one question um, from our community that you know this person said that they've experienced what they described kind of as a light show when they were losing the majority of their sight. Um, they saw bright lights even when closing their eyes. Um, and they were just wondering, what, what is this? Is this the damage that's being done to the optic nerve? Or what, you know, what is causing this kind of, these bright lights uh, even when their eyes were closed? Uh, Dr. Sotirkos? Yeah, so um, sometimes this is this is observed in acute optic neuritis. So in the optic neuritis treatment trial, I believe about a third of patients were experiencing what is called photopsia. So these kind of flashes of light that were often precipitated by by eye movement, and we see this sometimes in clinical practice. To my knowledge, the underlying etiology is not entirely known, but it likely has to do to some extent with hyperexcitability potentially of areas of the optic nerve that have been affected by, by inflammation. Okay. Um, and then what kind of doctor or healthcare professional should someone um, who's been diagnosed with optic neuritis see, you know, a neurologist, an ophthalmologist, both, um, any other kind of specialties that should be involved? Dr. Henderson? Uh, so, I would recommend that patients who have optic neuritis, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, I would recommend that patients with optic neuritis be seen by a neuro-ophthalmologist. Uh, clearly, maybe I'm a little biased, but I think that uh, we have the ability to really accurately diagnose and start the initial evaluation for optic neuritis. Um, if there is an underlying disorder, particularly, or if there's concern for an underlying disorder, then a neuroimmunologist like Dr. Satirkos should be involved as well uh, to help with that evaluation and to and to uh, offer advice on long-term treatment and coordinate that long-term treatment. Um, so I think really the answer is uh, neuro-ophthalmologists can be ophthalmologists or neurologists. Um, but someone with that extra training, uh, kind of combining the two areas. That's a great point. Thank you. Um, and so we did get another kind of specific question from our community. Um, so this person in 2003 was diagnosed with transverse myelitis with partial recovery, um, you know, with leaving with some reduced sensation and then erectile dysfunction. Um, this past autumn in 2019, they had a flu shot and then a week later had shingles. Um, or second attack of shingles that they had. Um, and then they, you know, a few days later had double vision, reduced sensation in their left arm, pain behind their right eye, um, damage to, you know, having uh, damage to the sixth nerve, having double vision and increased erectile dysfunction. And it was presumed that they had a stroke and is being treated like a stroke. 
um, but they you know, are just concerned based on this history of transverse myelitis that it might be optic neuritis or something similar. Um, is there are there any tests that you know if you know kind of more generally if this if you saw this in your practice you know what tests might be done to kind of just make sure you know it's a stroke as opposed to an optic neuritis, uh, Dr. Sotirkos? Um, yeah, so if, I mean, first of all, I want to qualify everything that I say with that. I'm I'm not trying to offer any medical advice, and I think that it's extremely difficult to kind of. Um, provide specific information regarding this situation without kind of having examined or having kind of the full information regarding the history and what the imaging showed. I think that what is important to clarify, and, I, and Dr. Henderson discussed this a, a little bit previously as well, is that optic neuritis should not produce double vision. So optic neuritis involves the nerve that carry, the optic nerve, which is carrying information from the one eyeball to the brain in order to tell our brain what it is the eye is actually seeing. So in that situation, double vision should not develop. What is developing is vision loss or vision changes in one eye. Double vision is caused due to a misalignment of the eyes. So when the eyes are not aligned on the same object and one eye is viewing something else, then you will develop double vision. And so that is what one of the things that the, the sixth nerve, which is mentioned here, does. So it's a nerve that moves the eye. So if that's involved and the eye movements of an eye, specific eye are impaired, that can produce double vision. So I think that it's important for everyone to be aware that optic neuritis is not causing double vision, but that would suggest something else being involved. Great, thank you. That's a, that's a good point. Um, so we had another question where someone has had optic neuritis four times, um, and so they, you know, they sometimes experience flashes of light, and sometimes they don't, and they're just not sure, you know, I know we talked about the flashes of light earlier, you know, why this might happen sometimes and not others, and does, you know, the location of where these flashes occur potentially tell the neuro ophthalmologist anything about, you know, the damage to the optic nerve. So for example, you know, in the most their most recent attack, they had flashes of light in the lower part of their eye, whereas in their previous attacks, they had it in the upper part. Um, Dr. Henderson? So I think that aside from the fact that we know that, as Dr. Sachiko said, about a third of people in the optic neuritis treatment trial did have these photopsias, particularly when they move their eyes. I think in addition to just knowing that that's a potential symptom, it doesn't really give us any additional information about the underlying cause of the optic neuritis or, you know, any prognostic value. Um, I'm not really aware of any additional information it could provide. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, uh, you know, are there any potential visual rehabilitation techniques that one can do, you know, after having an attack of optic neuritis, Dr. Henderson? So, certainly we have uh, potential rehabilitation that we can offer to patients who are being functionally affected by their vision loss. Um, and typically the way I go about this is by referring patients to our low vision division or a low vision specialist. And there are low vision specialists throughout the country who can help with this. Um, really more than uh, treating the vision itself, these specialists are able to help patients make the most of the vision that they have. 
Um, and particularly, this might relate to issues like reading. There are many devices available now, techniques, kind of special magnifiers or uh, electronic sort of magnifiers or contrast enhancers um, that can help patients uh, read easier. Um, additionally, it may be that, you know, with significant vision loss, patients need help around, the, around their homes. They need help uh, making their homes more accessible, and that's something else the low vision specialist can do. Uh, another issue is clearly always driving, and that's something that, that the low vision specialist can work on as well. So, you know, for patients who are having uh, effects on their activities of daily living, not able to do things that they want to do because of the vision, then there are definitely rehabilitation techniques that you can think of, kind of like occupational therapy for the vision uh, to help improve the function uh, using the vision that you have. Got it. That makes sense. Um, and so we also got a question from a, a group of uh, patients who are, have, are positive for the MOG antibody. Um, and so they said that they've experienced seeing small flashes of colorful shapes um, for months post uh, you know, an attack of optic neuritis. Is this related to the damage of the optic nerve or something you know, potentially different altogether? Dr. Sotirkos? Um, yeah, I think that this is kind of uh, a similar to what um, Dr. Henderson was discussing previously regarding the flashes of light. So flashes of color, flashes of light, kind of, we're inter um, are kind of interchangeable, like in terms of what we call photopsias. And I think that generally any kind of um, that that is likely related to the optic nerve involvement from prior. And and generally we don't really use those types of symptoms to really guide our our, our treatment necessarily, I think what we monitor really is the visual the visual function per se. Although again, these symptoms can occur due to other things as well. And generally, again, I think that it's important to advise that most of our patients should be following regularly with an ophthalmologist in order to make sure that, because again, everybody, optic neuritis is a relatively rare condition, but there are a lot of more common ophthalmologic conditions that can occur. And it's important to make sure that people are being monitored regularly to ensure that there is no concurrent other ophthalmological condition. And then um, sometimes these symptoms can also occur in people with migraines these that are known as visual aura sometimes. And so that's another thing that can potentially cause kind of these sorts of color shapes. Okay. Um, and then are there any scenarios when VEP uh, might be preferred um, for OCT? Uh, you know, there, uh, this uh, listener was saying that some studies have shown, have suggested that VEP might be more sensitive for optic neuritis than OCT. Uh, Dr. Henderson? I apologize. You said that that what technique would be more sensitive than OCT? Uh, VEP. Oh, VEP. So you know that the the thing about OCT. So OCT is an excellent imaging technique that we have. Uh, we haven't talked about it much during this uh, during this discussion. So just to kind of give a quick overview, OCT is an imaging technique that can be done in the clinic uh, with the patient wide awake just sitting at a essentially like a slit lamp sort of setup and the photo can be taken and acquired in just a few seconds and can give us the ability to really 
look at the retina and the structure of the optic nerve in, in histologic detail. So we can really segment out kind of cell layers that we're interested in and follow the thickness of these layers over time. So it's really an incredible, an incredible resource we have. However, the OCT is really a structural measure. And so what that means is um, immediately when someone has the onset of an optic neuritis, the structure of the optic nerve typically hasn't been affected yet. It's just an acute functional decline. It's usually at least, a, it's usually about two weeks before you start seeing a change in the structure of the optic nerve. So while if someone came to me two weeks after the vision loss, I would definitely be able to look at the OCT and see some changes. If they come to me a day or two after the vision loss, the OCT is likely going to look completely normal. And so for that reason, OCT is really not the best way to diagnose an acute optic neuritis, one that's happening right then. Uh, VEP, on the other hand, as we mentioned earlier, is really a functional measure. So it's actually uh, measuring how the visual pathways are working. Are they working properly or is there a delay in how they're working or are they not transmitting the signals like they should be? Um, and that would be measurable right away, assuming that the VEP is reliable. Um, so, you know, in an acute setting, VEP would perhaps be, be a better way to diagnose than uh, OCT. However, I think MRI and clinical exam are really the two best options for acute diagnosis of optic neuritis. Okay. Um, and then, uh, can optic neuritis cause other problems like cognitive problems or balance issues, uh, Dr. Satirkos? Um, so, so optic neuritis in, in isolation without involvement otherwise of the brain or spinal cord would not be expected to produce cognitive dysfunction. Um, also, balance, I mean, vision, obviously, binocular um, vision is useful for depth perception. So if one eye is, is severely affected, people may lose depth perception to some extent, and that could potentially impact balance to some extent, kind of, and people are in, uh, unable to calculate distances appropriately. But otherwise, balance, ambulation should not be affected unless there is some other process involving either the brain or spinal cord at the same time. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I know we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the trying to figure out if there's potentially an underlying uh, disease process that's leading to the optic neuritis. Um, but we did have one question and, you know, a, a follow-up about um, if someone tests positive for the MAG antibody, um, you know, what percentage uh, of cases may go on to, you know, have a recurrent disease course and what percentage usually tend to be monophasic, uh, Dr. Sutirkos? Yeah, that's an that's an excellent question. So that is an area of of active of active research at present, and I have to qualify that with the testing of of the Mog antibody positive at the time of the initial attack um, seems to um, to potentially predict a the risk of recurrence. Although there's there's also stu there are studies that have shown that persistent Mog antibody seropositivity may be of uh, it may increase that risk of recurrence. So somebody being positive at the time of the attack and then remaining positive on subsequent repeat testing. 
But I have to say that at, at present, it's it's really an area of active research, and it seems like the risk may also vary between adults and pediatric patients. So in pediatric patients, the percentage of, of, of um, acute demyelinating events that are associated with anti-MOG um, seropositivity is relatively high, and we're still really learning more about this. And the, the existing studies are in, are in relatively small cohorts, and I think that there's much more work to be done. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, you know, are there any new treatments or any kind of new research that's coming out that's being done uh, for optic neuritis, uh, Dr. Henderson? Uh, yes, there's lots of research being done. Um, as Dr. Satirkos just mentioned, particularly on MOG, there's a lot of research being done. Um, but additionally, on, you know, what is the what is the best acute treatment for optic neuritis and uh, what is the best time course for some of the acute treatments, particularly the plasmapheresis that was mentioned earlier? Um, these are all active areas of research. Um, we're, we're part, we uh, at Wilmer are part of a, an optic neuritis research consortium uh, that's headed up by the Mayo Clinic and actually involves many institutions around the country uh, that are producing uh, new clinical research looking at these questions. Um, additional research that's being done, a lot of it at Mayo and in other places as well, involves identifying new antibodies for underlying conditions. So uh, much like the MOG antibody wasn't, wasn't a known antibody a decade ago, um, we're hoping to, to continue to identify new antibodies uh, that may account for some of the patients who have recurrent optic neuritis that hasn't really been characterized yet as far as the underlying condition. Additionally, um, there's research being done trying to identify biomarkers for disease progression and, uh, and to find the best ways to, to monitor these patients over time. With regards to new treatments, um, there are people working on this all over the world, um, particularly with regards to optic nerve regenerative therapies, so optic nerve regeneration. Um, and, you know, there are many avenues in which that's being evaluated um, in optic neuritis and, and in many other conditions that could potentially uh, be relevant to, to patients with optic neuritis. And ways to really approach this include, you know, stem cell kind of research as well as uh, other molecules that may promote neuroregeneration. Um, and, and again, that's, that's uh, research that's being done all over the world. Great, thank you. That's um, you know very hopeful and um, good to hear. Um, and then, uh, do uh, Dr. Sotirkos, do you ever see false positives uh, for the MOG antibody? So I think that again, we're we're still learning a bit more regarding what a true um, a true positive MOG is. I think that to some extent, there are there are, for example, studies that have suggested that up to one percent of people who have Typical multiple sclerosis may be seropositive for MOG. So in that in that context, the the question is: Is that really a false positive, or is that telling us something regarding the pathophysiology of the condition? So 
generally, it's to some extent, the, the positivity of the MOG has to be interpreted in terms of which assay specifically was performed. And often the titer can sometimes be informative as well. So if it's a very borderline titer, it may be worthwhile to repeat. And generally, we do repeat in order to kind of obtain a trend to see if it's something that is a one-time positive at the time of the relapse, and then the, the, the person seroconverts the seronegative, or it's something that we see persistently present in the blood. But again, we're, I, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. And again, as I mentioned previously, so there we, we don't exactly have very good data present in order to counsel patients in terms of therapy. There have been no clinical trials in MOG IgG-related disease. So everything that we do is really based on clinical experience to some extent. There is a likelihood that the condition could potentially be monophasic in a number of patients, although it remains to be completely quantified. And in different cohorts, we've seen different percentages of patient going, patients going on to develop recurrent disease. And so we do need to understand kind of what factors can inform our therapeutic decision-making in order to identify which patients should really be treated and how. Great. Thank you. Um, and then before we end, I just wanted to open it up and see if there, you know, was anything that you um, felt like it was important to mention that we didn't, you know, have a chance to talk about or, um, you know, any, yeah, anything you think that maybe we missed or needed to be talked about in more detail, you know, to either Dr. Henderson or Dr. Sotirkos. Right. I'm guessing, I'm yep, go ahead. I think that was a, a pretty comprehensive discussion that we had. Um, I think I, I just wanted to make sure to kind of reiterate again, to some extent, the, the difference between optic neuritis and, um, and the visual symptoms that occur in that context, which are typically, again, eye pain and what we call monocular vision loss. So it, only one eye is affected. If you close that eye, things look fine with the other one and typically patients should not or unless there's um, there's involvement of the other side and typically there should again there should not be double vision double vision is a problem with eye movement and alignment of the eyes which points to the fact that something else could be going on or something people can sometimes have optic neuritis and simultaneous involvement of another part of the central nervous system and so that should raise concerns for something else but double vision again is not something that is associated with optic neuritis and then Dr. Henderson? Uh, I agree. I think this has been a, a, a pretty uh, thorough discussion, so I don't have anything additional to add. Great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. I think, you know, we, uh, as we said, it's been a very comprehensive discussion, and we, you know, really appreciate you taking the time out to answer these questions and, you know, offering this additional resource to our community. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.